This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning. Welcome to Breaking Points. Crystal, how are you doing today? So far, so good. Still early. It is the last Breaking Point show before the holiday, but wait, there's more. Yes, we do have a lot of good content for you guys posting over the Thanksgiving holiday, and uh, premium subscribers are going to get early access to all of that. So Sagar and I were both busy yesterday. I recorded a long interview with Norm Finkelstein, asking him a bunch of you guys' questions that you sent in, and some questions of my own, by the way. And uh, Sagar was busy recording a long interview with Jocko, also about Israel and Gaza. So we will post all of those early for you guys if you are premium subscribers, if you want to get early access to that content, make sure you sign up, breakingpoints.com. We're going to post a couple of little teaser clips too uh, early in the week so you guys can get a sense of what those interviews are all about. lot to get to in the show this morning. We have updates on uh, Israel's war on Gaza, including escalating risks of a potential wider war and the Biden White House being pressed both on whether Israel is committing war crimes and also whether they are perpetrating a genocide. So we'll write that down for you. We also have some new troubling developments with regards to uh, journalists, both here and in Israel and Gaza. We have quite a rant from the one and only Cardi B, Cardi for president, in my opinion. Um, She went off on Eric Adams, mayor of New York. She went off on his budget cuts. She went off on Biden. She went off on the two wars that we're attempting to fund and fight right now. So we've got some of those highlights, and we will get into everything you need to know about Cardi B's 
thoughts on the world. We also have a really wild new president of uh, Argentina. We're going to bring in Ryan Grimm to help us understand how he came to power, what his appeal was, and what it all means. We've got Cenk Uger, presidential candidate uh, in the Democratic primary, of course, back on the show to talk about how his campaign is going. And we've got a little nice, lighthearted Thanksgiving segment, um, some new polling showing that most people super not into talking to their friends, family, relatives, et cetera, at the Thanksgiving dinner table about politics. That has probably never been more true than right now when tensions and feelings about what is going on in Israel and Gaza are so high. And we asked you guys to give us some thoughts from your Thanksgiving dinner table of whether you will be broaching political subjects or not. Uh, let's go ahead, though, and start with some of the updates coming out of Israel. And uh, we had a number of very disturbing developments in terms of the risks of this sparking a wider regional war. Uh, so first, let's put this up on the screen. Hezbollah just struck and apparently destroyed, this is per uh, you know this video and other reports on the ground, much of this is an Israeli military site called Birnet. It's near the Lebanese border, but it is in Israel. So this is a major cross-border attack from Hezbollah on an Israeli military location. Um, this, of course, creates giant risks because Israel will no doubt respond. What does that response look like? Part of the escalation is not only in terms of the size and scope of the attack, but in terms of the uh, actual weaponry that was used here. And you guys know this is not my specialty, but what they said is that uh, Hezbollah forces carried out the attack using Burkan short-range rockets, which can have an explosive payload of up to 500 kilograms. This comes as Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah had previously announced this month that Hezbollah forces had started to deploy those weapon systems for the first time. So this is, Emily, the first time that we have seen that particular weapon being used in this conflict. Yeah, and again, to your point, you never know what the sort of spark that lights something even wider is. And we actually like are learning that on a day-to-day -day basis, which I think is partially what's so frightening about this news. Um, you know, you just don't know what comes next. And we have troops, so what are we up to like dozens of attacks on American bases? So we have about 10 bases that have been hit so far about 61 times, and uh, you know, that's that's led to about 61 injuries. Some of them have been serious. Some of them have been reportedly traumatic brain injuries, and that's how fragile the ecosystem is not actually just in the Middle East, but around the entire world right now, Crystal. It's it's really touch and go every single day. Yeah, so you all re will recall uh, Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, gave a much-anticipated speech that had a lot of people on edge about what they would be announcing. I believe this was like two weeks ago at this point. And it ended up being a lot of typical saber rattling, but no commitment to escalation. But as you see, Isra uh, the Israeli ground offensive and bombing campaign continue in Gaza. Obviously, that continues the risk of es escalation on Hezbollah's part and on the Israeli part. At the same time, that is not the only group that we have to be concerned about. Put this up on the screen. Okay, so what you're watching here is Yemen's Houthis. Uh, taking over a ship that has some ties to Israel. So a ship hijacking in the Red Sea. Um, they all apparently had cameras with them to record this takeover. They had previously warned that they would intercept uh, any sort of uh, ships that came through this area close to Yemen that had any sort of Israeli ties. Mm -hmm. None of these individuals who are on board, by the way, are Israeli. Not that any of that would make any of this okay anyway. Um, but you can see once again 
the risk of escalation. And let's put this next piece up on the screen of how this is already impacting um, you know, travel in terms of our shipping lanes. Two ships divert course away from the Red Sea area after that vessel was seized by Houthis. Two commercial ships had to divert their course in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. They were connected to the same maritime group whose vessel was seized by Yemen's Houthis, according to shipping data. Israel on Sunday said the Houthis had seized a British-owned, Japanese-operated <laughs> cargo ship in the Southern Red Sea, describing the incident as an Iranian act of terrorism, uh, the Houthis having ties to Iran, with consequences for international maritime security. And so even the connection to Israel's a little, uh, little far it's not it's not that closely connected to Israel but apparently there was a beneficial owner of this ship that at one point was an Israeli billionaire so I guess that's a connect right so the British ship the British company that owns the ship is partially owned by an Israeli businessman and is being right now leased out by the Japanese so again you know that's a completely different connection than I think a lot of people immediately suspected because Israel uh, when the news broke, uh, I, I don't think it was even clear how many. Uh, what's the what's the right term when you are uh, the the distance from? Crystal's not helping me. She's <laughs> standing there. Degrees of separation. There you go. Degrees of. I was trying to think of uh, the Kevin Bacon, right? Like yeah. your six degrees. That it wasn't clear what it was. Yes. And uh, that was really scary. Well, and part of what makes it scary is you know. If this had been Israeli nationals on board this ship, mm -hmm. and now you have mm -hmm. an additional, because we still don't know where the ship is, we don't know where these people are being held. I mean, the the people who were on the ship are being held captive now, right. effectively. Right. So imagine we had Israeli nationals or American nationals who were now being held captive by the Houthis and the potential escalatory spark that that could provide. So all of these things are extraordinarily dangerous, and they will continue to be extraordinarily dangerous so long as uh, Israel's war on Gaza continues. You also have within the um, Defense Department here in the U.S., put this up on the screen from the Washington Post, a real split emerging as they say Biden struggles to deter attacks on U.S. troops. This is what Emily was just referring to. A surge in attacks on deployed U.S. forces has roiled some within the Defense Department where officials frustrated by what they consider an incoherent strategy for countering the Iranian proxies believe responsible acknowledge the limited retaliatory airstrikes approved by Biden have failed to stop the violence. There is no clear definition of what we are trying to deter, said one defense official. Um, are we trying to deter future Iranian attacks like this? Well, that's clearly not working. Mm -hmm. And what they point to is the fact that since October 17th, U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria faced near-daily assaults from rocket fire and one-way drones, recording at least 61 incidents and about as many injuries in that span. Um, this is per Pentagon data that was obtained by the Washington Post. This is not something, by the way, that the U.S. government is really advertising. Uh, it took them being able to obtain this data to report out what the actual figures are. It shows the attacks have targeted 10 bases used by American personnel who are spread across both countries. The pe Pentagon said the Houthis destroyed a $30 million U.S. Reaper drone over the Red Sea in recent days. U.S. warships have in the past few weeks intercepted weapons fired from Yemen in the direction of Israel as the attack count has continued to climb. So too has the concern that it is only a matter of time before one claims a U.S. service member's life. And again, as long as this conflict is ongoing, as long as there is no ceasefire or even any humanitarian pause, you have risks of escalation all around from the Houthis, from uh, Hezbollah, from uh, the West Bank. 
You have uh, U.S. troops being targeted in Iraq and Syria by these groups. And again, the possibility that a U.S. service member loses their life in one of these attacks continues to be extremely high. And then what does that mean in terms of an American response? So this is something we all have to keep our eyes on. Because remember, Emily, there was that reporting that came out that even the U.S. administration is fearful that actually Israel wants that wider war. It's yeah. kind of an analogous situation to Ukraine, where Zelensky very much is wants that wider war to fully draw the U.S. in on their side. There's a similar situation unfolding here, or at least concerns that there's a similar situation unfolding here. And comments by Netanyahu recently have done nothing to allay those fears. Let's take a listen to what he said in a recent interview. We're destroying their infrastructure, their command posts, their rockets, their underground tunnels. And we're going to win because we have to win. This is a battle of the forces of civilization against the forces of barbarism. And if barbarism wins in our part of the world, Europe will be next and America will be next. Because the axis of, of terror of Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis and their other minions will imperil the Middle East and then spread their barbarism to the entire world. Israel is fighting our war, but it's also fighting America's war. It's fighting your war. So actively making the case that this is America's war. Sound familiar? And yes, indeed. And trying to stoke fears here that Hamas, an organization that has never had an interest in like global jihad the way that, say, al-Qaeda or ISIS um, did, that that would be a genuine risk to us here. I mean, I will tell you that I think the longer that this conflict continues and the more Made in America stamp bombs are dropped on innocent civilians in Gaza, yeah, that probably does put us increasingly at risk the longer this continues. Well, and the benefactors of Hamas and the Houthis and Hezbollah absolutely do have more uh, global uh, ambitions. They, they see the world in a different, it's, it's not so much just about Gaza uh, for Iran, it's about, you know, Netanyahu might have better luck actually making a point about that. <laughs> it's not just about Hamas, that people who have funded Hamas, that support Hamas, and that's where uh, when we see how our troops are fanned out across the Middle East and you have operations by Hezbollah, you have operations by the Houthis, that's where I think you really see the risk. And Netanyahu, I think, saying we're fighting your war is not going to go over well with the American people. I don't think that makes anybody feel better about this conflict whatsoever. Well, one thing that polling shows really clearly is that no matter whether you're a Democrat, Republican, or Independent, there are widespread concerns about the U.S. getting drawn yes. directly into this conflict. And I think what you can see from these events and these potential sparks and these potential steps up the escalatory ladder is that those fears are far from unfounded. The longer that this continues, the more of a risk of a wider regional war. And when you have someone like Netanyahu, who is the head of the Israeli government, who, again, even the Biden administration fears, they actually want that wider war. Even if the U.S. government wants nothing to do with it, that doesn't mean that things don't spiral out of control and we all end up somewhere that we where, that we do not want to be. And I think that's why the your war language is especially grating here in the U.S. because that means we have lost control. That, you know, if, if this is our war and it's being waged by Netanyahu in this way where he's saying, you know, you're not fighting your own war. I mean, that's the implication of what he said. You're not fighting your own war. We're fighting a war on your behalf here in the Middle East. Yes. You lose control. 
uh, and you lose control over some major decisions. And I know, you know, we are, we do have, obviously, we know that we have a lot of control over uh, how Israel is uh, conducting, prosecuting this war. Uh, at the same time, not total control. And I think Netanyahu saying this is you know, not entirely a war being fought by you, even though it is your war, that doesn't go over well. His language is also, again, very reminiscent of Zelensky who says, yes. you know, I'm fighting on behalf of civilized nations, on behalf of democracy. This is the case that he has been laying out, too, for why we should send him everything that he wants and we should back him no matter what. And also part of why he has wanted to draw us in more directly to his defense. And, you know, it's a very similar, it's a very similar case. It's, hey, listen, if we don't stop Russia here in Ukraine, the next they're going to move to Europe and who knows where the eastern, you know, beyond Ukraine, further into Europe and who knows where it's all going to end. That's basically the same case that Netanyahu is making here. And we should be very disturbed. We should listen very carefully to the implications of what that all means. You know, and actually it also reminds me a lot of David Frank and George W. Bush in 2002. Um, this conversation about, obviously, Axis and, and allies is, you know, not just about Iraq and it's not just about now, but this idea that, you know, in order to prevent future wars that are even wider, you have to fight a wide war now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, and it is absolutely true that these groups are connected. There's, there's no question about that, that they also share some similar ambitions, that they share similar em enemies for similar reasons. I think what we've learned over and over and over again over recent decades, let alone the last decade, let alone the last two decades, is uh, that's not a wise course of action. This idea that you can just have a, quote, global war on terrorism. I, I mean, have we learned nothing? Clearly, we have not. I think that much has become incredibly clear, given uh, our lack of ability to, or lack of desire, really, to rein in Israel and, you know, the fact that Israel is repeating and amplifying every single mistake that we made in the wake of 9-11. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. 
you know, we just brought up Ukraine, and um, one of the things that the U.S. claimed that we were standing up for in Ukraine was the quote-unquote international rules-based order, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. This was the case that we made to the American people of why we should be all in with Ukraine because we have to make sure that the international rules-based order stands, that we consistently apply these principles. Well, now, when it comes to Israel, you have, um, we have U.S. officials being pressed on whether effectively we are enabling Israeli war crimes and whether potentially we are also enabling Israeli genocide of Gaza. Take a listen to these responses. Are you confident Israel is following international law, John? Just yes or no there. We are confident uh, that it is our position that it needs to. When we have seen issues uh, that are raised uh, a, a, based on incidents on the ground, we raise them privately and directly with the government John, of Israel. John, let me just, you're, you're, you're saying, gonna, you're saying that Israel needs... Need, judge and jury on this question. Yeah, let me just follow up quickly. You said Israel needs to follow international law. Are you confident they are following international law? What I can say is it is not... Uh, our position, certainly my position uh, as a policymaker, to, to play real-time judge and jury on the question of any particular incident. When we see things that concern us, we raise them. We have done that during the course of this conflict. We will continue to do that. Uh, and again, just to restate it, it is our position that all countries, including Israel, including the United States, need to adhere to laws of armed conflict. Hamas, by the way, does not only not hold itself uh, to that standard, it openly boasts uh, about uh, its willingness and, and its uh, reality of, of violating those standards. So that is the challenge. But this word genocide is getting thrown around in a pretty inappropriate way by lots of different folks. Uh, what Hamas wants, make no mistake about it, is genocide. Yes, there are too many civilian casualties in Gaza. Yes, the numbers are too high. Yes, fam too many families are grieving. And yes, we continue to urge the Israelis to be as careful and cautious as possible. That's not going to stop from the president right on down. But Israel is not trying to wipe the Palestinian people off the map. Israel's not trying to wipe Gaza off the map. Israel's trying to defend itself against a genocidal terrorist threat. So when we're going to start, if we're going to start using that word, fine, let's use it appropriately. Well, uh, the Biden administration previously had no problem using that word. Um, they used it without hesitation to apply it to Russia. Um, so that's number one. And when it comes to war crimes as well, you now have every single Biden administration official, when they get asked this question, or Democratic member of Congress, this is their response. Well, I'm not judge and jury, so I can't say. But once again, when it was Russia, they didn't need to be judge and jury. They were very, very, uh, very willing to call it what it was, call it war crimes. Here's Joe Biden himself um, being asked whether Putin is committing war crimes, whether he's a war criminal. Take a listen. No. Will you go to Did you ask me whether I would call? Oh, I, I, I think he is a war criminal. And Emily, with regard to genocide, what he said was, I called it genocide, speaking of Russia's actions in Ukraine, because it's become clearer and clearer that Putin is trying to wipe out even the idea of being Ukrainian. The evidence is mounting. It's different than it was last week. I believe this was in the wake of the uh, atrocities in Bucha. The more evidence that is coming out, literally the horrible things that the Russians have done in Ukraine, and we're going to only learn more and more about the devastation. So listen, 
I know these discussions of what language you use here and whether it's technically genocide or whether it's technically ethnic cleansing can get very tedious. But actually, John Kirby has a point when he says, if we're gonna start using these words, we need to start using them appropriately. And I would say we need to use them consistently. Now, I don't care if you're a normal person and you feel uncomfortable using the term genocide, it's fine, that is fine. If you think, you know, genocide equals Holocaust and I don't see what's happening here in Gaza as equivalent to that, no problem with that. But if you're the president of the United States, you need to apply this term consistently. If you actually care about any sort of humanitarianism, if you actually care about the quote unquote international rules-based order. And what we have seen from the Israelis is not only the spoken genocidal intent, and we have some of those comments that honestly are not even the worst ones that have come out of this government, and also the clear actions. And Emily, I looked up you know, the definition of genocide per the Geneva Conventions. Mm -hmm. They say genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethic, ethnic, or relational, racial or religious group, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcefully transferring children of the group to another group. And so you have to have two pieces. You have to have the intent which again, we have numerous statements coming from the Israeli government all the way up to Netanyahu himself that certainly constitute genocidal, spoken genocidal intent. And you have not only killing members of the group, not only causing serious bodily or mentally harm to members of the group, but this piece about deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction. All two million plus people in Gaza right now are under a complete siege. You're denying them food, fuel, water, complete communications blackout. I mean, if that's not denying them conditions of life, I don't know what is. So again, if you're calling it genocide when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, where frankly, at this point, the barbarism of Russia is nothing compared to the civilian death toll and the conditions imposed on all of the people in Gaza, be consistent. Use the word, whether it is friend or foe, because John Kirby is right. We need to use these words appropriately. They need to be consistently applied, whether it's Russia, whether it's Hamas, or whether it's Israel. Yeah, there's no consistency, and the international rules-based order is a rhetorical weapon, basically, that's used by the person who has the most power and yes, the upper hand. That's and, true. You know, even when even when groups don't have the most power, the upper hand can be powerfully sort of invoked at places like the UN. So I think your your point about Russia is very well taken. There's a complete lack of consistency that undermines our case about civilization versus barbarism. I'm not saying that case isn't you know, broadly accurate, but that is uh, not helpful if you're trying to make that case. And in fact, actually, Crystal, we have some clips uh, that, you know, show further undermining of that case, of comments that have been made by people in the Israeli government. Yes. So uh, Yair Lapid, who is supposedly like the, you know, moderate or liberal opposition figure in Israel, um, just made the, the case that actually majority of all the people who have been killed in Gaza were terrorists. Let's take a listen to that, and then I'll tell you on the other side why this is such an issue. You have to remember, Jonathan, many of the people who were killed were terrorists. The, the majority of people who were killed were Hamas terrorists. People are saying this number, 12,000 12, people were killed. Yes, this is the Hamas is an army of 40,000 people, and many of them were killed. 
So this is like the moderate liberal version of the case that has been made from many other Israeli officials that basically everyone in Gaza is Hamas, everybody in Gaza is um, fair game, that there are no innocent civilians. And I'll tell you why I say that. Take a look at um, this next piece, put this up on the screen. So according to the UN, roughly 70%, 67% of all of the people killed are women, children, and babies, 70%. So when he's saying a majority of the people who have been killed in Gaza are terrorists. Are the babies and children and women, are they terrorists? Are they Hamas? And so again, this is this fits very closely with the comments that we saw from Isaac Herzog and from many other Israeli officials and from uh, our own member of Congress, Brian Mast here, that effectively there are no innocent civilians in Gaza. Therefore, we don't really need to worry about civilian life here and anyone is fair game, which you know fits in with the previous comments from John Kirby about whether or not this is a genocide. Well, and problems with the numbers, which certainly exist as they would in any conflict, don't necessarily, by the way, mean that you, you can deny 70% civilian casualties, 70% women and children casualties. So you can't jump from one point being true, which is likely that that there are some problems with the numbers, although uh, in in some analyses, it's that the numbers are too low. Uh, you know, there's there's some analyses that will say, well, and you hear this a lot from um, Israel, we've, we've heard this from people in the Biden administration, that the numbers are actually inflated. But then you have other people saying the numbers, if anything, are too low. So we know that there's quibbling over the numbers, and we know there's no way that these numbers would be precise. To take point A and then jump to point B, which is that imprecise numbers mean most of people People who are being killed are, of course, Hamas. This is what we talked about yesterday when we talked about Osama bin Laden's letter to America, the point Sagar made about how he justifies uh, killing civilians That's uh, right. from that perspective, which is that you're able to say, you know, they, they use the line that everyone voted for Hamas, which is not true, um, although there is, you know, there is support for Hamas in Gaza. There's not denying that either, but also then that because people just exist in Gaza in a way that's supportive um, of Hamas, although if you also believe Hamas is evil uh, and dictatorial, then it's true that they intimidate their citizens out of uprising. <laughs> so there's just a lot of inconsistency. That was a great word, I think, that you used a couple of minutes ago. There's a lot of inconsistency in these arguments. And sadly, uh, the people who are being caught up in the mix are civilians. Yes, that's right. And also in an attempt to justify um, not only the killing of civilians, but of aid workers, um, we also have this clip of an Israeli government spokesperson who says now actually the World Health Organization is also Hamas. So we already had them making the case of the UN that the UN that UN aid workers are Hamas. Um, you know, the hospital is Hamas, all of the schools, all of the apartment buildings, this is all Hamas. You know, according to uh, Yagir Lapid, majority of those killed, the women, children, babies, it's, uh, this is also Hamas. Now we have them arguing, this is an official Israeli government spokesperson, that actually the World Health Organization is Hamas too. Let's take a listen. It is tragic and outrageous that the World Health Organization resisted Israel's calls for an evacuation before the start of the ground operation and is now calling on Israel to facilitate that evacuation under fire in an active war zone. We hold it complicit with Hamas's human shield strategy. We hold it complicit with any loss of life from its gross negligence. And we note that despite completing a risk assessment about the Shifa hospital, that assessment still covers up for Hamas's abuse of the hospital, still says nothing about the hostages. And the World Health Organization is yet to condemn, astonishingly, Hamas's illegal exploitation of hospitals as human shields, 
jeopardizing their protected status. And finally, in what is maybe the most extraordinary recent comments, and you know, rather than going back and playing all of them for you, we've covered many of these comments before coming out from you know the Likud party, from security cabinet members, etc. Put this up on the screen. You've got Israel's finance minister saying they completely agree with this column um, from the retired Major General Giora Island, former head of the National Security Council, who is an influential figure. All right, well, what was in this uh, op-ed that the finance minister uh, agrees 100% with? In part, uh, Giora Island writes, the way to win the war faster and at a lower cost for us requires a system collapse on the other side and not the mere killing of more Hamas fighters. The international community warns us of a humanitarian disaster in Gaza and of severe epidemics. We must not shy away from this, as difficult as that may be. After all, severe epidemics in the south of the Gaza Strip will bring victory closer and reduce casualties among IDF soldiers. And no, this is not about cruelty for cruelty's sake, since we don't support the suffering of the other side as an end, but as a means. So we support the suffering of the other side as a means, actively calling for severe epidemics in the south of the Gaza Strip, which is where, of course, they told all the civilians to flee to from the northern Gaza Strip, and pushing back on the idea that we should care at all about the well-being of the ordinary civilians within Gaza. And again, this is Israel's finance minister who says they completely agree with this view of the conflict. So, um, you know, it's really extraordinary to me, Emily, just the distance between the way that our leaders present this conflict and present the Israeli position, the Israeli approach, the Israeli plans for after um, they end the, the war and after there is a ceasefire at some point, what happens next, and what the actual Israeli government is out saying very clearly in op-eds, in public statements on Israeli television day after day. Well, and this is like several weeks ago when there was a lot of talk of Dresden, right? There were all of the sort of representatives of talking heads that were going to the media were, were saying, you know, listen, we remember what happened at Dresden. We, we remember what war looks like. And uh, it, it's very, I think, different from how a lot of people uh, perceive. And uh, in fact, actually, we just heard John Kirby uh, talking about how Israel doesn't have genocidal ambitions towards Hamas uh, that match Hamas's genocidal ambitions towards Israel. And I think it's actually really important. I mean, one of the benefits of uh, talking to you and Ryan and, and doing a show like this is you actually see some really dangerous flirtation um, from, you know, when, when, you, when you're digging into stuff like this and you're looking at the rhetoric of people who are actually in positions of power in Israel. Um, not all perfect, not all perfect. And you wouldn't you know, know that from a lot of Western media coverage. And yeah, I mean, I think that's really, really deeply unfortunate. And it should be a wake up call about uh, sort of, if we go back to Netanyahu saying, this is, we're fighting your war. Right. We're fighting your war. Well, what is our war? Are we in agreement with Netanyahu on what that war actually is and how it should be prosecuted? I, I think not. I think the American people are certainly not in agreement with how that should be prosecuted. So yeah, I mean, and, and again, this is the frustrating thing. Are they probably right 
and we may disagree on this, but are they probably right that there's complicity at the World Health Organization and the UN in ways that are inappropriate? Um, you know, in order to function in Gaza, that's a really difficult thing for NGOs, and uh, and we're actually going to talk about how it's difficult for journalists in the next block. There are some uh, obvious obstacles, and I think they're right uh, that there has been complicity, there have been troubling relationships and connections in, with the World Health Organization and UN as they've operated in Gaza over the course of years. That does not jump that you, you can't just take that point and jump to point B. You can't go from A to B and say that they're all, their numbers are wrong. The World Health Organization, you know, calculating 70% civilian casualties or women and children casualties, that doesn't mean the numbers are wrong. It doesn't mean you can continue to deny uh, the full reality. The Geneva Conventions came out of the horrors of World War II with this global idea of we can never, we can never have war look like, we're gonna have war, it's gonna happen, it's apparently an unavoidable fact of human life. Um, but civilians in particular should be completely off limits. Mm -hmm. Civilian infrastructure, like hospitals, should be completely off limits. And there was some consensus around that. Now, has it ever been applied perfectly? Of course not, of course not. But when you pair our stated aims in Ukraine and our claim yeah. to really adhere to the international rules-based order and really be out there in the world trying to make sure every country is you know, consistent with the, the rules of war and with the international rules-based order that has been laid out post-World War II. When you lay that beside the comments from our officials, oh, who could say whether they're war crimes? I, I don't really know. I'm not really an expert. Is it genocide? No, I don't, I don't really know. I'm not, I'm not really an expert. Well, guess what? There are experts who are looking, if you're not an expert, I'm not an expert. There are experts that are looking at this, that are saying yes, very clearly. When you have put Al-Shifa aside, if you wanna take you know, the Israeli side, okay, how many other hospitals have been bombed? How many other schools have been bombed? How many refugee camps have been bombed at this point? How high is the civilian death toll? It's not hard to see plainly what is happening and what is unfolding here. And so I don't think the U.S., you know, this was already a problem for the U.S. after the Iraq war and that debacle. Mm -hmm. I don't think they can ever go and with a shred of credibility lecture anyone in the world about war crimes, about anything to do with humanitarianism, about the laws of war, about the international rules-based order, it's over. But it's that's, done. That's part of the problem here. And, and again, this goes back to when we were talking about the bin Laden letter to America. That's part of the problem here is not just the shattered credibility, but the insistence on the on that credibility in other parts of the world that is, is grating. Uh, for people who are still, you know, in Iraq or in Afghanistan. And that's why these groups continue to proliferate. Uh, that's why it's like whack-a-mole with groups in the terrorist groups in the Middle East is precisely because that credibility has been lost over the course of years. And then on top of it, we continue to uh, try to throw around this credibility as though it's totally intact. And yeah. again, this is what's frustrating. It's that, I, you know, and, and I know probably a lot of people in our audience disagree with this. I do think the United States has the moral high ground here. But uh, thinking that doesn't mean that the United States is perfect, is morally perfect and morally immaculate. Thinking that the United States has moral high ground over another power doesn't mean that the United States uh, is you know, morally impeccable. And so those things are, are not, you know, they, they don't have to go completely together. And to not be able to acknowledge uh, where those mistakes are being made, I think, is uh, 
you know, I actually think it's amazing that we live in a country. I think, in fact, I think this is part of where we have the moral high ground that we can have conversations like this that are highly critical. Um, so uh, it, it just needs to trickle into the high profile conversations and not just be an independent media. Before this moment, I might have been able to agree with that and might have been able to make the case. But when I see us day after day and Biden aggressively saying no ceasefire in spite of the fact that two thirds of Americans and 80 percent of Democrats want a ceasefire, in spite of the fact that, I mean, this this horror of these babies dying, five premature babies dying, the siege of 2.2 million people denying them food and water and just the basics of life you know, enabling that, funding that, providing diplomatic cover for that. No, I don't think we have the moral high ground. I don't think there's any way that we could claim that versus anyone in the world at this point. I disagree on that, especially when it, you know, juxtaposed with the case of Hamas, juxtaposed with uh, the case of, I mean, even in Ukraine, I still think we have the moral high ground as bitterly as I disagree with our policy there. Um, But, but, uh, the perspective that I think you just shared is going to be increasingly powerful with a wide swath of the American people. There's no question about it. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. 
All right, let's talk about what's happening for journalists both here and abroad. Yeah, you know, this is a, a really interesting case, actually, that kind of relates to what we were just talking about with the United Nations and with the World Health Organization. Uh, journalists have a really hard time operating in Gaza, which means uh, that some major media outlets are using freelancers or sort of forced to rely on the work of freelancers. Let's put this first element up on the screen. News from yesterday, an NBC journalist was arrested by the Israeli police for cheering on Hamas during horrific terror attack. That is a headline from National Review, so it's coming from the right. Just read a little, I'll read a little bit of the story here. Quote, an East Jerusalem-based NBC journalist was arrested last week on suspicion of inciting terrorism and identifying with a terrorist organization in connection with several social media posts she published on October 7th during the Hamas terror attacks. Marwat Al-Azza, a freelance producer who started working with the network shortly before the war began, wrote in response to the kidnapping of an elderly woman, quote, it's killing me. It's a black comedy. The old woman looks happy. A bit of action before she died. So that's per uh, reporting in Haaretz. Sirens all the time, she wrote in another post. The Jews are hiding and the Arabs are out drinking coffee on their balconies. She wrote in another post, I feel like I'm watching a movie where the director is Palestinian and the protagonists are from Gaza. Now, police, according to National Review, told the Jerusalem magistrate court that the posts were, quote, inciting and glorifying the horrible acts committed against civilians. As the Jerusalem Post has reported, authorities say that she is cooperating with police and she admitted to writing the post. She actually, quote, arrived ready for arrest, according to the Jerusalem Post report. Now, we can go to the next element because this is not the only case that's uh, been happening with, you know, you could call it, in, in this case, there's a, a claim that this is uh, cheering on Hamas, but in the case of this LA Times story, which continues to play out, uh, this is a, a SEMA 4 headline. If you're watching, you see it up on the screen. The LA Times blocked reporters who signed an open letter criticizing Israel from covering Gaza, uh, which is kind of an interesting, and Crystal, we can get into this conversation about media ethics that this broaches, but as Seema Four puts it, the LA Times has prohibited staff from covering the Gaza war for at least three months if they signed a strongly worded open letter criticizing Israel's military operations in the region. So this is a letter, people probably remember it actually from earlier this month. It called on newsrooms to use language including, quote, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and genocide when referring to the Israeli bombardment of Gaza. Uh, two people with knowledge of the situation told Seema Four that staffers who signed the letter have been told by the paper's management that they will not be able to cover the conflict in any way for at least two months. So that comes from two sources to Seema Four. Um, you know, we, we have one more story here as well, and this one is uh, if, if people have been following the work of this Palestinian poet, uh, the sad news is he has been taken from his family and detained in uh, Gaza. He's in IDF custody, Mossab Abu Toha, uh, poet. This is uh, an element from uh, the New Yorker. The New Yorker had published uh, had published this poet, Masab Abu Toha. So had the nation. I actually went and read some of his poetry uh, last night, Crystal. It's really wonderful. Uh, but another uh, artist in this case, uh, in IDF custody, in detention, uh, actually had written this war. This is actually, you can see on the screen again, if you're watching, when the war in Gaza started, my family fled to the Jabalia refugee camp. Then Israel started bombing the camp. So it's a first person essay about what it was like to be in Jabalia. Uh, it's a beautiful writing, actually, whatever you, it, it whatever side you're on in this, it's beautiful writing. Um, and the the broader, I think, questions here, Crystal, are about uh, how Western media outlets are 
able to cover this case study uh, on the, or, or able to cover this story with the case study in the first situation, uh, reminding a lot of people of the New York Times rehiring that freelancer who had posted in 2018, I love Hitler, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there had been some other cases of that too, because you're relying on freelancers in Gaza, and there's obviously support for Hamas in Gaza, so it creates this strange situation for Western media outlets that aren't really able to go into Gaza um, and have a hard time doing independent coverage, as we were talking about yesterday when they were just following the IDF through tunnels and CNN just taking the IDF's narrative and right. running with it like it was the gospel. Um, that's extremely difficult. Uh, that's going to continue to be extremely difficult for Western media outlets. On the other hand, the Semaphore story is just crazy to me. Because, uh, and even as somebody who disagrees with the letter, uh, saying that Western media outlets should be using ethnic cleansing and apartheid and that kind of genocide and that kind of language in their coverage, because the LA Times pretends to be a neutral arbiter of the truth. And so as long as you're pretending to be neutral, this letter is ridiculous. But what the letter suggests is that they know that the LA Times, that's bullshit, that the LA Times is not neutral, that they take sides. So this is their own employees saying, if you take sides, if you're going to take sides like Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, take a damn side here. What's your problem? This is, it's calling the bluff of the paper, basically. So um, a few things. First of all, let me start with the National Review piece that was like, oh, this NBC report cheering on the fact that a journalist for NBC was arrested for quote unquote inciting terrorism. Right. She's I mean, you prison. read the yeah. you read the comments, yeah. the posts. Yeah. They were not like, yay, Hamas. You might say they were like right. mildly in poor taste. That's about as far as I would go with this. And this journalist was arrested? Completely agree. And your complaint is about the news organizations, not about the fact that a journalist was arrested for a social media post? That's insane. And, you know, especially coming from a conservative outlet that, you know, conservatives have now for years been, you know, cancel culture and the, the deep state, and they're coming for any sort of dissent and dissident opinions. Like, nothing has happened approaching this. Um, and you're out there cheering that on. That is insane. That's number one. Well, also, we're funding Israel. About a fifth of their military funding is from us. So it's not as though it has nothing to do with the United States. Correct. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's such an important point when people ask, oh, why do you care so much about this? Con because we're funding it. Because we're enabling it. Because we're backstopping it. And so that's also why we should care about what's happening here with regard to journalists. By the way, I just looked at the numbers from Euromed Monitor with regards to your comments, Emily, about how difficult it is to cover what's happening in Gaza in any sort of an independent fashion. 60 journalists have been killed in Gaza. This is more than any other conflict. So even if you feel like, you know, well, the only thing we can rely on is like the Palestinians who are on the ground, of course, at this point, that's the only thing you can rely on because, you know, Western journalists are not allowed into the Gaza Strip outside of some like bullshit IDF propaganda ride along. They are massacring those journalists and their families, by the way. So it makes it even more impossible to have any understanding and any like connection with the humanity that is unfolding and what is happening on the ground right now. So there's that. With regard to the LA Times and this letter, which not only called for, um, you know, words to be used in the, with the proper definition that those words actually mean. So for example, ethnic cleansing. You already have almost, I think it's 1.8 million people out of the 2.2 million in Gaza forcibly displaced. 
you have official government documents coming out saying our ideal solution is to push them out of Gaza altogether into the Egyptian desert. That, you may not like that that's ethnic, that is the textbook definition of ethnic cleansing. So the fact that you are penalizing journalists who are saying we should use these words to mean what these words mean is crazy. And the letter also said that these outlets should be speaking out against the killing of journalists. So it wasn't even like this letter was like, quote unquote, taking a side in the conflict. You know, a lot of newsrooms have policies against protest or against signing on these letters in an activist direction. This was directly about the job of the paper. And so to penalize these reporters for saying this is the appropriate way to cover this conflict, I think it's outrageous. And by the way, the LA Times, to their credit, is also the first, I think, um, American news outlet, like newspaper, to call for a ceasefire. So, um, you know, it's not that the uh, that the editorial board or others there aren't aware of what's unfolding on the ground. So I find that sort of censorship outrageous. And many of the reporters, apparently, who were taken off of coverage were some of the people who had, like, the deepest knowledge and who, sure. you know, had right. connections to the region, et cetera. So it's a real loss in terms of uh, their coverage. And then you know, obviously it's horrific what's happening here with um, the New Yorker contributor and poet, founder of the Edward Said Library, who was detained now by the IDF. And there's so much hypocrisy here from Western media outlets who pretended to care so dearly about press freedom in the Trump era. And now, silence. Silence as all of this is unfolding. Emily, like you, I read some of uh, Masab Abu Toha's uh, work after I saw that he had been detained, arrested by the IDF and is being held, you know, captive, hostage, whatever you want to say. His wife has no idea where he is at this point. Um, and he's, you know, an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary person, an extraordinary writer. At the end of that piece from The New Yorker, he wrote, recently my wife dreamed that she was collecting frozen meat. In her dream, she was saying, this is my son's arm. This is my daughter's leg. If not for the war, I would be playing soccer with my friends twice a week. I would be watching movies with my wife. I would be reading the books on my shelves. I would be taking my kids to the playground and to the beach. I'd be riding my bike with my son Yazan on the beach road. But now there are no books and there are no shelves and no beach road. It is invaluable. It is crucial that we have voices of, like that, helping people to understand the human beings so they don't just turn into you know numbers and statistics um, that oftentimes make people's eyes glaze over. To have a voice like that silenced is a real loss for everyone. I don't care what quote-unquote side you're on. If you're on the side of human beings, it's a real loss to lose that voice and not have access to that humanity. Certainly lucky to get out of Jabalia safely and to now be detained and to have the sort of attention of uh, other people around the world on his situation. Well, I'm very curious how it unfolds. I'm very curious actually how the IDF, which again, the, the IDF is detaining him reportedly, uh, how they react You know, now that this is becoming more front and center in the conversation. I'm especially curious about that, Crystal. Yeah. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. The information age can be overwhelming, especially when the information can't always be trusted. But for the past 180 years, readers around the world have turned to The Economist as their trusted news source, delivering in-depth expert analysis of a wide range of topics. Listeners get a one-month free trial when they sign up at Economist.com. That gives you unlimited digital access to daily articles, special reports, great podcasts, subscriber-only newsletters, and so much more. Take the guesswork out of staying informed. Go to Economist.com to sign up. All right, let's get to uh, Cardi B here and uh, her thoughts on the world. So she posted- You are so excited for this segment. Well, I love Cardi B. <laughs> I genuinely love Cardi B. And I even forgive her. She has like some cringe takes on taxes. Yes, I don't even good care. takes on taxes. I don't even care. I'm just going to put that to the side because I love Cardi B. And she went on, what was this, Instagram Live or something? I think so, yeah. And she went off. This was like a 10-minute diatribe. I personally recommend you watch the whole thing, but we pulled some of the highlights. This has to do with Mayor Eric Adams and massive cuts that he announced to a bunch of like uh, social spending, education, libraries, uh, police even. This was supposed to be the fun, the police guy is cutting the police budget um, in New York and also sounding off about Joe Biden and the various wars that we have involved ourselves in. All right, so we're going to play this for you. Warning, kids, earmuffs, out of the room, whatever. <laughs> There's a lot of language here. Let's take a listen. I'm not this year. Don't ask me. I don't give a the resume that they send, I don't give a I'm not endorsing no fucking presidents no more. Because how is that a hundred, $100 million budget cut in New York City for for um schools, library, uh, police safety, and sanitation? Yeah, Joe Biden's talking about, like, yeah, we could fund two wars. We could fund two wars. Motherfuckers talking about we don't got it, but we got it. Like, we're the greatest nation. No, the we're not. We're going through some shit right now. Like, say it. Say it. We're really going through, uh, we, we, we really, 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 really are f***ed right now. And yeah, we talking about we f we could fund two wars. That's like a nigga trying to front like, yeah, I got the money to support two bitches, but you really don't. Y'all talk about y'all don't fucking, y'all don't make negotiate negotiation with the Oswald. Y'all need to sit the f*** down with these people and find a, and, and find agreement. No, we cannot fund these f***ing wars. We can't. Keep it a bean. We can't. I told myself this week, like, yo, the internet right now is too dark because celebrity drama, of course, we 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 love it. We, inf we infuse with it. We watch it. But it's like, yo, that's little of what's really going on in the world right now. That's nothing compared to what's going on in the world right now. So she's going off about cuts to the schools. That actually, at one point, she brings up the cops and she's like, well, I don't really care about the cops. But then she goes on to talk a lot about the cops and how crime's going to be through the roof. And they cut the sanitation budget. There's a whole piece where she's talking about how rats are going to take over the city. Um, she's also talking about, then she throws in Joe Biden, says she's never going to endorse another president again. We can't afford these wars. We've got to get out of these wars. What's your what's your view, Emily? She's channeling everyone. You know, it feels like there are basic <laughs> there are basic 
things that we used to be able to do as a society that like we cannot perform the most basic functions of a city of a country right now and I you know not I'm not trying to like overanalyze this but I feel like that's actually really what she's talking about like again this is the quote she says how is there a hundred million dollar budget cut in New York City for effing schools library police safety and sanitation and Joe Biden is talking about like yeah we could fund two wars we could fund two wars uh, if and actually in the daily sort of political discourse one thing I think it gets lost but you guys do a great job focusing on it is where our scores from from education are and like the mm-hmm. rapid drop in in scores that are coming out of like students performance um, over the last you know, five to ten years they're shocking they're staggering and so uh, yeah for a lot of people they look at a 120 million dollar budget cut in New York as she's talking about schools public libraries and the police department um, you know I don't give enough about the cops but like it is what it is <laughs> it, I mean like New York City, again, feels like it's unable to perform basic functions, but so does the country as a whole when you're yeah. looking at, again, two wars. Uh, if uh, Also, another thing you guys have been good about focusing on, when you look at the numbers of money that we've sent to Ukraine and you compare it to our normal budget, mm. our, our, our normal like foreign aid in other places, uh, the amount of money that we spend on things here in the United States, like it's staggering how much money we have sent to Ukraine. It's, it's like truly a shocking number. Even when you follow these things closely, you look at the number, it's shocking. Uh, and so, yeah, when you look around you and you feel like the, your government, that you are, this connects to her position on taxes. You know, she she's, gets a huge chunk of her paycheck taken out and then looks at budget cuts and sees rats running around the city. And it's like, well, you know, if, if that's how a multimillionaire feels, how do the rest of people feel when it's like I'm paying 30% to the federal government, I'm paying X amount to my state government, depending where I live, and we can't even teach kids math? Yeah. Well, I honestly have never been more sympathetic to that. Obviously, I think the rich should pay their fair share and the tax rate is regressive and all of that stuff like still stands that I've always stood on. But I am very sympathetic at this point to that instinct because, yeah, you look around, you're like, wait, my tax dollars are going to fund two wars? Mm -hmm. My tax dollars are going to... That nobody declared war on, by the way. Right, that's right. (laughs) We, I didn't get asked, nobody got asked about that. My tax dollars are going to support, you know, giving Israel more bombs to drop on babies in Gaza? No, like, no, I don't feel great about paying taxes for that when we don't have healthcare, right? So um, th- there's a few things here. Did you watch Cardi's comments about uh, FDR? Yeah, 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 she loves We covered that here too. Yeah, she I, loves I love Cardi. But yeah, she she went on this whole thing. She got asked a question about like, oh, what did you think about, um, you know, when you got a cheese sandwich with David Letterman or something like that? And she was like, that wasn't the thing. The thing was, mm-hmm. let me tell you about FDR and Eleanor and how much I love them. Like, she's clearly very, she's politically engaged, right? This is someone who cares about history. She endorsed Bernie, mm-hmm. like, She's not just sort of, you know, a bystander not taking in what's happening around the world. So I want to put that out there. But in addition— She's pretty smart. Obviously. Yeah, Yeah, obviously. I mean, she's—I love Cardi. Again, she's she's incredible, and I think uh, it's—I think that's why people really uh, take take note of some of the things that she says politically. But there's also just a real normie sensibility here. Yeah, 100%. That just lands with, like— you can't fund the freaking schools, but there's no limit over here whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, a lot of times, sometimes I get kind of depressed about like the state of America, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, oftentimes I feel like if we had just random people <laughs> running our government, it would be way better than the decision making that comes out as it is. And she says that at one point, she's like, these leaders, like they, you know, they're terrible effectively, like these leaders aren't it. So in fairness to Mayor Eric Adams, I did some digging here about why these budget cuts are happening and what he would say and argue with some validity is that there is a huge number of migrants, there are a huge number of migrants who are coming into the city. New York has um, a policy that, you know, they have to provide shelter for everyone. Many of these migrants are coming from Venezuela, although it's, it's from a, a range of different countries. This has genuinely been a real challenge for New York City, just given uh, the numbers. But I did some digging into the actual numbers here of the projected budget gaps and how much the cuts are versus how much um, sheltering migrants cost. This is from the Fiscal Policy Institute. <laughs> they say that the uh, city estimates the total cost for asylum seekers over 24 and 25 is about $11 billion. The city's portion of that cost is about $9 billion. About two and a half billion of that has already been budgeted in the adopted budget. So that puts the city's new funding need at 6.5 billion over the next two years, 2.3 billion in 2024, and 4.1 billion in 2025. So the amount that it costs, if, you, if you're claiming that the whole problem is just the cost of sheltering migrants, the numbers don't add up here. They are, um, they are cutting way more from the budget from things like schools, sanitation, and the police budget, by the way, uh, then it actually, you know, the, the migrant cost actually makes up. So anyway, there you go in terms of the numbers, because I did want to dig in here and give the full picture of what was going on in New York City as best I could. Yeah, that's actually very helpful. And the normie sensibility, again, I think a lot of people are increasingly going to look at policies like New York City's and San Francisco's, and in fact, they are, and say, well, the price tag of, of budget cuts is the price tag of being a sanctuary city. That is to say, people wouldn't be flocking here, Texas wouldn't be sending people here if it wasn't a sanctuary city. And so, so essentially, this is the policy that's costing us X amount of money. And I, I mean, I completely, I, I believe that to be true. You talk to migrants, and they say they specifically go to migrants, to sanctuary cities. Uh, and of course, it makes sense. It's perfectly logical. But that's a question Democrats, like Eric Adams, increasingly need to have a good answer for. And obviously, we've seen him start to split with party orthodoxy, specifically uh, mayors of some big Democratic cities, including here in D.C., start to split with the party orthodoxy on uh, illegal immigration as soon as it kind of came to their streets at the level that it does to, you know, Brownsville, Texas, or uh, some of these uh, border towns that are rural and uh, lack of a lot of social capital, um, and in, in some ways because of this. Uh, but Crystal, I really think that is trickling into like normal people looking around their city in a way that, you know, budget cuts typically come from Republicans. Uh, Republicans are typically the ones lowering taxes and typically the ones that, you know, want less money and to, you know, the education system, et cetera, et cetera. So Republicans have to answer for this all the time. And this one, on this particular part of it, that's increasingly going to be a problem for Democrats. And Cardi didn't connect the dots totally, but she she sort of started to. Um, and you reminded me of the William F. Buckley quote when you said, like, people are looking around like, who are these idiots running the government? Like, he, he has a great quote where he said, I'd rather entrust the government of the U.S. to the first 400 people listed in the Boston telephone directory than to the faculty of Harvard. Uh, well, New York City <laughs> is a city of immigrants. Hell yeah. Right? And their self-conception is a city of immigrants. 
And so even with the strain that the number of migrants, you know, have, have brought to, you know, just the ability to shelter them and be able to, to school the kids, especially now that you have huge budget cuts coming to universal pre-K and to education overall, there still is a pride in being an accepting place yeah, for absolutely. people coming to the country. And I think but that applies to the whole country, too. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And I think it especially applies in a city like New York, like New York just given their self-conception. But there's no doubt that um, cities like New York and places around the country have been failed by D.C. And the fact that they have mm -hmm. been unable to, you know, come up with any sort of sensible immigration policy. And one of them, you know, with a lot of the immigrants coming to New York being from Venezuela, I mean, one thing you can really clearly point to is our sanctions on Venezuela and the way that has contributed, not the only factor, but contributed to economic chaos, which has forced people to leave. That's one thing. But the other thing that you can really point to is, you know, many of the people who are coming to New York and other places, they're asylum seekers. And they deserve to have their asylum claims adjudicated in a reasonable period of time. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Americans should expect as well. Mm -hmm. And so part of why this becomes a problem is because if you're seeking asylum, it can be years yep. before your case is ever heard. Oh, yeah. And this shouldn't be this should not be controversial that you have a, a surge in sufficient immigration judges to be able to clear this massive backlog of cases so that, you know, people are able to, by, you know, by law, have their claims heard and adjudicate and decide, is this a legitimate asylum seeker or not, and go through some sort of orderly process. So I don't dispute that uh, New York City and the country as a whole has been failed by the fact that there is no real, like, sensible immigration process in sense that is in place, that is rule-based, that is, you know, expedited, that has some sort of reasonable semblance of order. I don't doubt that at all. But with regard to Eric Adams specifically, the numbers that he's claiming of, you know, what they have to cut versus what they actually are spending on migrants don't add up. It, you know, and just to bring this full circle, uh, your point is, is so right. And I was uh, I was at a migrant respite facility in, uh, I think this was in Brownsville, Texas, um, and talking to some Haitian migrants a year ago and was looking at the papers that they had been given from our government, their asylum hearing was for years. It was, it was right. like, I'm looking at the paper and the asylum hearing is in like 2024. And it's just like, well, they're, they're like, we don't even know if we have a work permit. Uh, they, it was unclear to them whether they'd be able to work. And it was actually really unclear in the paper. Uh, and that, to bring this full circle, is that we cannot perform basic functions as a country anymore. Yeah. Uh, we, because of Washington, D.C. Like, this is downstream of Washington, D.C.'s completely Byzantine and poorly managed systems and our inability to actually make decisions about, for example, what our immigration system should look like when you have policies, decades of failed policies in Central America that are pushing people north, um, what do we do? How do we fix our decades of failed policies in Central America? Then how do we mm -hmm. fix our immigration policy to deal with that? We cannot perform these basic functions anymore. We just can't. Uh, and it's causing problems all the way down. Yeah, that is a great point. Um, all right, let's go ahead and bring in our great friend, Ryan Grimm. Uh, we're going to talk about the incredibly wild new president of Argentina, <laughs> who he is, what you should know about him, why it matters to you, and how we got there. Let's get to it. 
So Argentina has a new president-elect, Javier Millet. He is an anarcho-capitalist businessman, TikTok sensation, who seemingly came out of nowhere to win the presidency. Um, but our own Ryan Grimm is joining us now to talk about how he didn't actually exactly come out of nowhere to win. He had some powerful backing, so we'll get into that. Great to see you, Ryan. Good to see you guys. Do the accent. There you go. There you go. Um, so before we jump into this, first we need to set up for people like why this, why people are paying attention, um, and just how kind of wild this uh, this gentleman is, who now has just been elected with a huge amount of support actually from uh, young people in Argentina. We're going to play some of the videos that have gone viral of him. I'm going to do my best with the subtitles. Just bear with me. Also, I believe there is some language in these as well. This is a very uh, vulgar show we have mm. here today, Emily. Yes. Go ahead and put this up on the screen, and I'll, I'll give you the sense here. So he's standing at a board. He's pulling off the board all of these different ministries, environment, sustainable development that he says are out. Ministry of Women, Genders, and Diversity, out. Ministry of Public Works, out. Even if you resist, <laughs> he says, you can't give shit leftards an inch. Can you define shit leftists? The interviewer says, all collectivists, all kinds of collectivists. But why do you call them shit, she says. Because they are shit, he replies. <laughs> she goes on <laughs> to challenge him. If you think differently from them, he says, they will kill you. This is the point. You can't guy. give shit leftist an inch. If you give them an inch, they will use it to destroy you. You can't negotiate with leftards. You don't negotiate with trash because they will end you. If they the left have a guy, then it goes on to talk about how like if the guy is beating his wife, they'll just stand with him, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, that's the basic vibe of him. He's got some pretty wild positions. He's in favor of like selling organs and some other stuff and on a more serious, I mean, that's pretty serious, but uh, he also, from an economic pos uh, position, he wants to dollarize the economy, abolish the central bank. He's he's out there. Um, so give so people much. a sense yeah. of like, you know, your analysis of where he fits on the political spectrum. Well, I was telling Emily, it's like if a, if an even cooler Robbie Suave <laughs> is elected <laughs> president of Argent Argentina, uh, it, it it's the it's a he's a dorm room libertarian. Okay. That's, and that's where the like organ stuff comes from. I don't, uh, I don't yeah, think he's going to actually put that in. It's like you sure about somebody that? will press a libertarian. Well, should you be able to sell your organs? Then the libertarian's like, yes, market, absolutely. But, but he's also anti-abortion, pro-Israel, pro-Ukraine. So he he does have that kind of dorm room libertarian anarchist tendencies. At the same time, though, it tempered. It, not even I shouldn't say tempered, but they're actually like. Uh, textured by this uh, anti-cultural leftism that, Crystal, you were pointing out, Argentina has gone uh, pretty culturally far left in some different ways to the point where you can understand why there would be a backlash. Yeah, he does the whole, he says li libertarians don't have an official position on abortion, and he's like, he's he's on the side that you can't have freedom if you don't have, if you're never born, mm -hmm. so therefore I'm against abortion. Uh, most of his supporters are men, uh, not coincidentally with that position, uh, but the context for all this, of course, is that Argentina has been a basket case, you know, for a very, very long time. Yeah. Like years, yeah. The the inf inflation there over decades has just kind of sapped uh, the kind of strength out of the economy. Like people will get paid and immediately try to spend all of their money. One hundred and fifty percent right now. Yeah, and that's that's like good for them. <laughs> like only one hundred and fifty percent inflation over the last year. But like at stores, you you get banned from, you can only buy like certain amounts of things. So like fam, entire families will go together 
and like take the paycheck and divide it up. Wow. And the kids will be buying, you know, certain number of eggs and milk and whatever. Mm-hmm. And the rich then can like immediately convert all of their wealth into dollars. And the, the poor and the middle class are constantly trying to convert things into dollars because there's that's the only store of wealth. Oh, interesting. It, the, and the political system is just entirely broken because this Peron, you know, they call it Peronism. Right. And like, he, he invokes that on the campaign trail, didn't yeah. he? And he beat a Peronist uh, party and a beat a, a pathetic Peronist candidate right. who the voters called, uh, pa- his nickname was Pancake. He was the economy <laughs> minister. His name uh, is yes. Pancake. Pancake. So he, we call Sager when he's, he's been not with here. the left, he's been with the center right. Like he's he's just like an opportunistic uh, kind of uh, mm-hmm. and also like total charismaless politician. Like yeah. the center left party in Argentina is absolutely, you know, pathetic. What Peronism was was an attempt to like do leftism and, and labor advocacy and social justice stuff, but also co-opt the rich and business mm-hmm. element, which is Sounds always familiar. like trying to undermine yeah. the left. But obviously, that then coalition becomes like the big part of parentism. And so they benefit in certain ways from inflation. Some public workers, students, like a lot, so many different people benefit in some ways from the inflation mm-hmm. that every attempt to kind of combat it then runs up against a choke point. Like you think our like system has a lot of choke points for getting things done. Mm-mm. Like Ar- Argentina is like uh, on steroids. And so, uh, in the past, whenever they've tried to do anything around inflation, you'd have people come out in the streets and, and it would get shut down. So it's going to be really interesting to see what he can do because you're already seeing a bunch of center-left politicians who are sort of like seeing his victory mm. and recognizing it as a an anti-referendum on the status quo and saying, well, maybe... So you're, you're actually seeing a lot of people gravitate around him. Like the left thinks that he's going to just collapse under his own weight yeah. and, the, and the weight of his own silly contradictions. He doesn't have Congress. He doesn't. Right. He doesn't have Parliament. He doesn't. But there might be enough. Uh, there might be enough energy around him that he can actually get some things through. The problem for people will be the only things he'll end up getting through will be more kind of subsidies for the rich and like that wing of. Mm-hmm. Do, do we have that Lee Fong? Yes. Uh, piece that we yeah. have. Yeah. Yes. Put this up on the screen, guys, from uh, The Intercept. Some great reporting here from Lee Fong about um, the Atlas Network. And the headline here is Fear of Influence, How American Libertarians Are Remaking Latin American Politics. And it's this sort of sprawling network of think tanks. Um, You know, we're all familiar with the Coke Network. This is sort of the equivalent Mm -hmm. um, from a a foreign affairs perspective. And um, Millet is associated with some of the groups that are uh, affiliated with this, like, sort of sprawling libertarian big money network. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so without this well-funded, and it's the Koch Foundation actually contributes to this Atlas Network, uh, Donors Trust, which Mm -hmm. you guys know, like that's the big kind of right-wing kind of pool of money. It's a big donor to Atlas Network. And so what Atlas Network would do is go in uh, into these South American countries and Central American countries and and basically fund economic libertarian think tanks and then, you know, boost the careers of people like Millet. I knew I know uh, an economist who worked with Mile back like 30 years ago. Oh, interesting. And uh, who don't you know? <laughs> I know that it's really random. <laughs> Weird. It's totally, totally randomly. And she was like, "Yeah, he was. Everybody knew him. He was just like this crazy dude in the office, and just kind of like tolerated him. And he's also kind of funny. He's got like take my hair today and like times ten. Like, right. Just completely wild. Dude. And that's all he would have remained without like the Atlas Network and mm. these billionaire 
uh, libertarian networks to then kind of move him through the system. But it was about five or six years ago he started getting on t Argentinian TV a whole bunch. Yeah. And he's so mm. funny and like entertaining that it's very Trumpian phenomenon. Like yeah. CNN and MSNBC just loved the ratings that Trump brought. Right. And they were the oxygen on his fire. Well, and social media. Yes. And that's why one yeah. of the unique dynamics here is that a lot of these sort of like right-wing populist type candidates who've risen to power is mostly older generations. And a lot of the resistance to them comes from younger generations. Mm -hmm. Here that dynamic is flipped. Vox had actually an interesting piece about him. They interviewed a bunch of young people of why they support him when, you know, usually young people were backing leftist candidates up until this moment. Um, they interviewed uh, this one woman. She says, I only have memories of Argentina in decay. She's 19 years old uh, in Buenos Aires. So you look around and you associate all the political parties and all the movements that were in power during that time to a decaying country, and you desperately search for other options. Another thing that came out in this piece that I thought was really interesting, because he's also like, he says climate change is a hoax, and he's on that that whole train, mm -hmm. which, you know, fits with the libertarian right-wing, like, billionaire network as well. Afuera. And they're like, we there were a lot of people in this article that were like, I don't agree with him on that. I don't agree with him on abortion and these other cultural issues, but like, I got to get some food in my fridge. And I don't, and there were also people who were like, I don't even know. It could be a total disaster with this guy, yes. but That's, we got to do something. What do you have to lose? Yeah, yeah. That we got to do Trump something argument. here. And so that was like the sense that came from these young yeah. people of such desperation. That it was like, ah, well, I mean, at least he's different. I don't know. Let's give it a shot. You're given a choice between a guy named Pancake, who was the economy minister <laughs> overseeing an economy just in complete turmoil wow. or this guy. And so you can understand why you'd be like, you know what? Okay. I don't, I don't want to sell my organs. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm actually I'm for abortion rights. I don't, I don't think we should eliminate every single government ministry, but man, I don't like pancake either. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it's like, I know it's a disaster. Gotta, I know the status yeah. quo is a disaster. It's a, it's a scream of hell. Maybe yeah. a disaster. Hey, listen, if there's even a shot, that it's something, I guess I'm going to go for it. Right, right, right. So it's it's the status quo is a disaster, and this other candidate represents the status quo, which is basically exactly the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump dynamic. So it's not just that this other person is a blunt force object, is a wrecking ball. You know, Donald Trump seen as a wrecking ball. They literally used the Flight 93 yeah. election metaphor uh, in Claremont and other places on the right in the run-up to the 2016 election. So I, I do think that dynamic is, is somewhat instructive because, again, you have someone who promises who is absolutely telling you they will be a wrecking ball to the status quo in ways that most voters see as good and bad. It's just a totally unexpected quantity. And then you have somebody who represents the status quo. A lot of people will choose the uncertain quantity wrecking ball, even if they don't like everything about them. And, and I think there's a significant chance we're going to see some, uh, some significant violence because mm. wow. you're going to see... If he goes after the unions, if he goes after the pensioners, um, he goes after public workers, mm. like they're going to come out in the streets. Like that's how Argentinian politics has been but he's, waged. But he's libertarian, so he can't go Bukele. He it, certainly can. There's, I mean, he yeah, can, yeah. but like <laughs> ideologically, and right. if, if he's ideologically consistent, he's sort of the opposite of Bukele. He also is like the, the president of a government which is not consistent with not believing in government. Sure. He calls it, he calls it sure. a criminal organization, and now he's like the, 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 mafia, the mafia boss of it. And so I would not be surprised to see him you know, put guns out in the streets uh, if, if there are protests that try to bring him down. Uh, so it, I think it could get pretty ugly. And, and you might see people 
you're going to see a significant portion of the country, I think, support the violence mm. to say like, no, we on Flight 93, like mm-hmm. we when we said wrecking ball, we really meant wrecking ball. Uh, so it, it could get pretty dark. Yeah. And, and there doesn't seem to be any significant left opposition able to push back. Obviously, a lot of these dynamics are specific to Argentina, but do you see this as part of a broader trend, either in you know uh, South and Central America or more? Global? Yeah, I mean, he he definitely does. He, like he when he when he won, he put up a, a post of himself next to Trump and Bolsonaro. And Trump exactly. said he was very proud of him. Trump very proud of him. Um, <laughs> I, and I bet he ha- feels some affinity with Bukele in El Salvador. Mm. Um, and this Atlas Network is all over. The South America and Central America as well. So, he, it is he very much sees it as an international movement. These these libertarians don't rec, you know they don't like borders. They don't believe in governments or nations. So, uh, the, the the Atlas Network was very heavily involved in training the kind of organizers that led to the mass street mobilization that that brought Bolsonaro to power. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there's it is a, a similar thing we got we're seeing. Gotcha. All right. Um, well, we're going to do an interview with Ryan as well on his new book, The Squad. We'll give a little pre-tease yeah. on that one. That's going to drop over the holiday weekend. When is the book actually out? It's technically out uh, December 5th, but I think the Monday after Thanksgiving, you can start getting it in bookstores. Gotcha. Like the event we're doing, people will be able to buy books gotcha. there, for instance. Okay. Yeah. So thank you for your analysis here. And guys, stay tuned for more on Ryan's book called The Squad, AOC, and the Hope of a Political Revolution coming to bookstores near you soon. Ryan, great to see you. Great to see you guys. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. The information age can be overwhelming, especially when the information can't always be trusted. But for the past 180 years, readers around the world have turned to The Economist as their trusted news source, delivering in-depth expert analysis of a wide range of topics. Listeners get a one-month free trial when they sign up at Economist.com. That gives you unlimited digital access to daily articles, special reports, great podcasts, subscriber-only newsletters, and so much more. Take the guesswork out of staying informed. Go to Economist.com to sign up. Excited to be joined now by Cenk Uger. He is not only founder of TYT, but also is a Democratic candidate for president in uh, 2024. Cenk, great to see you. Great to have an update for you on the campaign. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, of course. So you shared uh, this recent clip of Joe Biden, which you proffered as evidence that perhaps he is not the man that Democrats should go with uh, for their next presidential candidate. Let's take a look. Now, just to get here, Liberty and Bell had to beat some tough odds in competition. They had to work hard to show patience and be willing to travel over a thousand miles. You could say even this harder than getting a, a ticket to the Renaissance tour or, or, or 
Rip Britney's tour. She's down in, it's kind of warm in Brazil right now. Um, I don't see the problem. You're not, you're not inspired by this? Yeah, wow, wow. Uh, okay, so first of all, it's Taylor Swift, as we all know, and except we don't all know, the president doesn't know. <laughs> uh, but that's not the point, guys. The point is, what was that? I mean, that's just so look, guys, if it's just a matter of Joe Biden's career and he's pulling a Diane Feinstein late in his Senate career, and then I feel bad for him and his family should help him, et cetera. But this is way more important. This is for democracy. This is for a presidential election. This guy's 22 points underwater. His uh, favorability is only 37. His unfavorables are 59. Does that guy look like he's going to pull off a comeback being 22 points uh, underwater? Impossible. He can't even finish a sentence. And I feel, look, I don't enjoy saying this. I feel terrible saying this. But someone has to say it. Otherwise, we're just going to walk into a loss against Donald Trump. And I, I'm just amazed. All of Washington. Now, I know that there's a little bit of a rebellion going on now, even within the establishment. But for so long, all of Washington was like, yeah, let's just lose. Who cares? Obviously, Biden's going to lose. I mean, he's been losing the swing states all along. He's been losing independence all along. Now he's lost Latinos. We we went from a 42-point lead among Latinos down to four points. He's lost them completely. Everybody knows he's going to lose. So my job is to be a little bit rude and snap Washington out of it. There's no way that guy who can't finish sentences and is down, you know, 22 points in his favorability is going to come do a miracle comeback and beat Trump or any Republican. I don't know anyone who actually disagrees with that. And so we actually have some of these poll numbers uh, that we were just kind of uh, alluding to. Some of these numbers, especially with young voters. I mean, look at this. Trump gains edge among younger voters. This is an NBC News poll from this week. Donald Trump is at 46%. Joe Biden is at 42%. That is a, for, for Democrats, that is a just absolute disaster. There's no other way to put it. And it's trending in the wrong direction. So it's not as though it started out that way. It's something that's continuing to go down. Cenk, especially somebody who is a kind of a pioneer in online spaces that are influencing a lot of really young voters and is now actively campaigning, how do you see that issue? And then at, what is the sort of, I'm also curious, is sort of when you're campaigning versus when you're trying to, you know, turn an online presence, a, a media, news media presence into a campaign, what's that process like, especially with younger voters who are, are much more influenced by that than uh, I think a lot of older people realize? Yeah. Uh, look, guys, that stat you just showed, it's over. There's near 0% chance that Joe Biden's going to win. And I'm saying that with my political analyst hat on. And in fact, that's why I entered the race, because I, I can read numbers. This is, <laughs> look, this is the same thing I said during the Hillary Clinton years. Guys, she's going to lose. Look at the polling numbers. You're being blinded. But that was 10,000 times less clear than this is. Joe Biden needs younger voters to win, period. Not even close. He, he won them in large numbers in 2020. And that's why the only reason that he could win uh, that that particular election, and he barely won the Electoral College in that election. If he's losing younger voters, and now he is, he has a 0% chance of winning. No Democrat can win without younger voters. He's that, I, I mean, look, this entire thesis of my book as to why progressives were going to win, we talked about this uh, last time I was on, mm -hmm. is because younger voters are so overwhelmingly progressive. 
Do you know how deeply incompetent you have to be as a politician, as a Democratic politician, to lose younger voters to Donald Trump? No, this guy's the worst politician in the world. The only reason he barely won last time is because the entire establishment coalesced around him, including all of media. So look, younger voters, why are they uh, against Joe Biden? One, they they didn't grow up with television. In right. te and that goes to your point about online uh, versus TV, right? Right. Uh, in the old days, if you'd get spoon-fed propaganda on television, they'd be like, oh, Joe Biden passed the semiconductor bill. You should be really happy. And people would be like, what? I'm not in the semiconductor business. But okay, I guess so, right? And Joe Biden reduced drug prices on one drug. And then, <laughs> and then everybody cheers. Oh, it's historic, right? But young people can just look stuff up online. They're like, wait, is there only one drug in the world? Oh, no, there are tens of thousands. Oh, it turns out it's a trick to protect the other 9,999 drugs. And like how many tricks? Oh, you're going to do student debt relief. Oh, you put a poison pill provision in there. You knew the Supreme Court would overturn. Oh, golly gee, did we get caught again? But now it's over because of uh, Israel and Gaza. Uh, he's lost younger voters so badly over that issue. Remember, Joe Biden is 200 years old. So he still thinks it's the 1970s or 1990s. And he's like, I support Israel and its war crimes 200%. Green light all the way. And young people are like, vomit. Oh, get out. Why, why is this guy so out of touch, so brutal? Because they're used to having TV do nonstop propaganda for any dumb idea that they had that they would shove down the throat of the American people. And now young people are leading the way to going, no, 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 no. You need to do things that we want. Our lives right now are way worse than our parents' lives. We're tired of this crap. And Joe Biden is never going to turn around. He's he's like frozen in amber. There's a 0% chance he turns around. Look, guys, it doesn't matter whether you like me or not. And yeah, okay, I buy, I, I, I am loud, I'm aggressive. I bought the URL, bidenisgoingtolose.com. I bought selfishjoebiden.com. They all redirected my site. Okay, I'm the bad guy. I'm the boogeyman, okay? Oh, no, don't say anything about the Democratic candidate. Our job is all to do propaganda and marketing for him so we can barely prop him up. No, I don't agree. We should pick a great candidate, candidate who's actually going to fight for you and fight for these policies. Does Joe Biden look like he's going to fight for you? He can barely fight a nap. <laughs> Let's put the uh, next poll numbers up on the screen, which I think bolster um, some of the points that you're making here, Jenk. This is also from NBC News. So 70 uh, percent of voters aged 18 to 34 disapprove of Biden's policy on Israel. 56 percent of all voters disapprove. 51 percent. So a majority of Democrats say that Israel has gone too far. And 49 percent of Democrats, so very close to a majority, oppose U.S. aid to Israel. Now, to play devil's advocate here, uh, what the White House would say is, it's just one issue. We're still a ways out from Election Day. Once we get down to it and it's Trump versus Biden, people are going to come to their senses and they're going to, you know, suck it up and vote Joe once again. What is your analysis there? Okay, totally, 100% wrong. So let me give you a number of uh, uh reality checks here. So number one, sometimes politicians go ebb and flow, of course, right? And at one point, Obama dipped down to like 43%. And so that's what the Biden people were using for a long time. But Joe, you're not at 43. You're now at 37. 37 is massively lower than 43. And 
Obama barely dipped in there once and, and bounced back up. Joe Biden's been down in the 30s forever and ever and ever. And it, now, the counter to Obama is George W. Bush. George W. Bush sank into the 30s. And I remember Tim Russert all the way back in the day in Meet the Press doing a, a, a segment on the narrative of comeback. And I wrote a blog all the way back in the Huffington Post days. said, <laughs> what comeback? You just invented that so-called narrative. This man has no capacity for a comeback. He's going to stay in, thir in, his, in the 30s the rest of his term. And I was totally right about that because George W. Bush wasn't even trying to make a comeback. That was his second term, and he was just driving his numbers into the ground. By the end, his partner, for example, Dick Cheney, finished at 9% approval, okay? So does the person have a capacity for a comeback or don't they? And how far down are they? Well, Biden is way further down than Obama was. He's been there way longer, and he has absolutely no capacity for a comeback. You just saw it with your own eyes. Who are we kidding with this politically correct crap about ageism? People see that, real people, voters, not political people, not people angling for a job in Washington. Real voters look at that and go, hey, no way I'm voting for that guy. He, he, he can't finish his sentence. He doesn't know what the hell's going on. No way, let alone Israel, let alone all the other issues. Guys, because of Israel, there's one other giant problem for Democrats. We've lost Michigan. His Arab support has dropped from the 70s down to 15%. And every Arab and Muslim, whether they're talking to me, they're talking online, or they're talking to a pollster, are all saying, look, it's one thing whether we vote for Trump or not, okay? But we're not voting for Joe Biden under any circumstance. So we'll stay at home, we'll do whatever it is. That's it, Michigan's gone. So now how are you gonna win the election without the most critical swing state of Michigan? This is political malpractice. We're purposely losing this election. I've never seen anything like this. This is total madness. There's no way Joe Biden's gonna win. It's not even gonna be close. And then finally, think about this. Incumbency is really important for a senator or a congressperson because that gives you name recognition and that gives you all the donor money, okay? But when you're running for re-election as president, incumbency is now in the modern world is an albatross around your neck. Why? First of all, it caused Donald Trump the election because COVID hit and he couldn't adjust in time and people were angry about that and that's why he lost the election. Now imagine in Biden's case that in October, gas prices go up. No, 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 zero percent, zero, zero, zero. There's no way he wins if gas prices go up in October. Now who controls gas prices? Well, the country that has the biggest effect by far is Saudi Arabia. Who do the Saudis love? Oh, right, they love Donald Trump. They love Trump and his family. They give them billions of dollars, all the golf tournaments. They've been in bed together this entire time. You think the Saudis aren't just gonna hand the election to Trump? You need a super strong Democrat who, well, number one, is not an incumbent and will not be as affected by gas prices, and number two, can withstand an assault from Trump and his allies. Biden hasn't even run. He's not even running. He's preventing yeah. everyone else from running, and he's not doing any campaigning because he loves Republicans. So when you ask him, hey, can you do a speech against Republicans? No, but my Republican friends, I've given so many tax cuts for the rich with them together. Where's my brother, Mitch McConnell? Let's freeze together. <laughs> come on, guys, come on. I, so, okay, I'm the bad guy. Everybody James, hate me. It doesn't me, matter. It let can't me ask be you, Biden. Though. Let me ask you, though, because, um, you know, if you ask Democratic voters, a majority say, we want Biden to step aside, we want other options, et cetera, et cetera. But 
when you give them other choices, and I'm not just talking about you and Dean Phillips and Marianne, but even when they ask, okay, hypothetically, if it was Biden versus Newsom or Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg or whoever, voters are still backing Biden. So why do you, why do you think that is? And, you know, and also give us a a reality check on how your campaign's going, where you are in the polls and what your trajectory is, how you want to make the comeback. Yeah. So number one, um, that those polls are deeply misleading. And I'll tell you why you have to. It's not like, oh, I don't like that particular poll. I, I hate when people do that. No, there's two reasons why they're deeply misleading. Number one, they put everyone in the poll. So Biden will have an advantage because he's the incumbent president. Meanwhile, Buttigieg, Newsom are the same guy. So they split the vote, right? Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, said they all split the vote. And then they go, oh, see, Biden's winning. And a lot of them don't have a lot of name recognition, like Gretchen Whitmer, right? But mm-hmm. so people don't know her, so they she scores lower on a poll. But if Gretchen Whitmer was a Democratic candidate, then everyone would know her. And so she wouldn't have that issue at all, and she wouldn't have the albatross around her neck of being 89 years old or, uh, sorry, 81, 81. (laughs) She could finish sentences. She's very popular in Michigan. She would win Michigan. She would win a lot of states. So uh, those polls are deeply misleading and are often just used to to further falsely prop up Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Okay, in terms of me, look, uh, we... (laughs) Wait, you know what? Did, what did Joe Lieberman say back in the day? He's got Joe Mentum. I've got Jenk Mentum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, guys, I'm honest. Uh, look, uh, Quinnipiac uh, puts me in the polls. God bless him. Everybody should put me in the polls. It's maddening that they don't. Anyway, I'm at 2%. So 2%, not the highest number in the world. On the other hand, everyone in the world expected zero, right? They're like, oh, loudmouth talk show host, not born in the country, no way, right? But Currently, I'm beating the governor of North Dakota, the governor of Arkansas, and I'm tied with Chris Christie, okay? So what happened? I, I thought I wasn't supposed to register. And I'll tell you what, guys, they're starting to panic a little bit. The Joe Biden team has started buying up websites that are similar to my website, okay? What, you worried, dog? Okay? And now they're trying to keep me off the ballot in a lot of places. Why? Because I'm the loudest, most aggressive voice making the clear, obvious call against Joe Biden. So it's bothering them to no end. Good. That's why I got in the race to knock Joe Biden out. Is it because I'm against Biden? Look, Biden's got issues, as I've been telling you, but that's not the main reason at all. No, it's because he's going to lose to Trump and we got to beat Trump. That's mission number one, mission number one. So right now uh, I got onto the ballot in Arkansas when nobody thought I was going to get on any ballots. So when they tell you don't try, that's because they don't want you to win. They don't want you to succeed. And by the way, they don't want anybody to succeed that would actually fight for the American people. So it turns out if you try, you can win. Yes, do you, we, we're do on you ballots. Have, we're going to get on more ballots. Do you have an update on the legal side of this question of whether or not you're eligible, um, given that you're a naturalized cist- citizen versus a natural born citizen? Yeah. So number one, uh, our thesis is that the 14th Amendment has already amended that part of the Constitution. If you read the 14th Amendment, it's a little bit like the Da Vinci Code. You go, oh, wow. Oh, yeah, it is. It's right there. How come I never saw that before? Uh, Because people don't regularly read amendments. Uh, 14th Amendment says all persons born or naturalized have due process and equal protection. They didn't say kind of equal, but not really equal. They didn't say, yeah, we said naturalized, but we didn't mean naturalized. No, they said naturalized. They meant naturalized. Equal protection means equal. It doesn't mean asterisks. It doesn't mean you're a second-class citizen. In fact, the Supreme Court has already said 
that you can't uh, declare someone a, a second-class citizen just because they're a naturalized citizen. Not about the presidential issue, but about different issues. We're going to make them apply that to the presidential issue. So we're going to sue a couple of states. And so that literally yesterday, we had a big meeting with our lawyers. I've got Bernie Sanders' presidential lawyers from 2016 and 2020 about which states to pick, uh, which jurisdictions mm -hmm. to focus on. And so for what I, but I would, what I would say to the voters is, let the courts decide that. Don't worry about that. If I'm not eligible, then I won't be able eligible and you won't have to worry about it. And it gets resolved much quicker during elections because that's the system we have in place so the voters can know before they vote. So put that out of your mind and just say, hey, is this the guy that I'd like to represent me? And, it, and if you're a younger voter, uh, if you're any voter that's Democrat, I'm going to actually do the stuff that you want. I'm going to fight like hell to do the stuff that you want. And Biden's wrong on a bunch of issues like Israel. So yeah. unlike him, I agree with the great majority of uh, both Americans and Democrats. We need a ceasefire immediately. Uh, I hate that the bombs being dropped on Palestinian children have made in the USA on them. Sending another $14 billion, Joe Biden says, at every turn, we don't have money. We don't have, we don't have money for paid family leave. We don't have money for higher wages. We don't have money for this or that. And then the minute there's war, he's like, yes, right away, take all the money. Take American money and bomb Palestinian children with them. No, no way. And student debt relief, definitely. Legalized marijuana, instantly. It's over 70%. What is wrong with you people in Washington? Why won't you ever do what the people want? Paid family leaves at 84%. What do you need it to be at 85%? Why won't you do it? And the reality is, it's because they're hooked on the donor money. They only serve their donors. They're all corrupt. These donations are bribes. I'm the only one who's saying it because everyone else is part of the corrupt process. For well, God's sake, pick someone non-corrupt. JankForAmerica.com. Speaking of that, uh, Joe Biden has the most money. Right now is the most support in polling. But what do you say to people who will say to you, Jank, that your candidacy just makes it more and more likely that Joe Biden uh, loses to Donald Trump? You know, he's presumptive nominee is whatever, you know, the media loves to use that blah, phrase. Blah. What, what's your response to that? Yeah, this is the same crap the establishment says every time. We've picked a loser and someone who's totally corrupt and who will do only what the donors want. Now bow your heads, otherwise you're hurting him. Well, why did you pick the, the guy who sucks, the guy who we don't want, who's losing in all the polling, and why do we have to bow our heads? What the hell, is this a democracy? Is this the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? No, we're not gonna bow our heads. You told us to bow our heads to Hillary Clinton, and she lost, she lost to Donald Trump, who's a moron, a blithering, idiot and she lost to that guy and then joe biden almost lost to him in 2020 he only won by 44,000 votes in three swing states now he's 15 points lower than when he barely beat trump last time and now we're supposed to bow our heads oh hell no 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 you bow your head how about that i represent the actual democratic voters so put me in a debate with joe biden see if he can survive see if he can survive the night Everyone knows there's no way in the world Joe Biden can survive a debate with someone like me. Then why the hell is he our candidate? Why don't we pick a strong candidate instead of a miserably weak candidate? I even bought woundedantelope.com. He's, okay, he's, there's no chance he's going to win. So, guys, it isn't about, oh, if you, we just prop up the terrible candidate just a little harder, then maybe we could beat Trump. No, he's already losing young voters to Trump. He has no chance. The correct path to beat Trump is get as many candidates in this race as humanly possible today, today. Get me Governor Whitmer, Governor Shapiro, Governor Newsom, it doesn't matter. And by the way, put me in a debate with them, see how they do, okay? 
because you need to be tested by fire. Trump uh, was tested by fire in 2016 with 17 candidates on the Republican side, and he won. Joe Biden had 27 candidates back in 2020, back before whatever it is that he has now has started, and, and he won, and it made him stronger, and it made him a, just barely strong enough to win in 2020. Mm. So let's get a strong primary in here to get a strong candidate saying let's prop up the weak candidate by doing propaganda on his behalf is a losing strategy and i will not participate in it so jank last question for you i just interviewed uh congressman dean phillips who obviously is also running in the democratic primary and uh he recently put out a tweet apologizing to bernie sanders like oh turns out you were right this process is rigged obviously the dnc is not hosting any debates they have no plans to host any debates so wondering if you have talked to uh congressman phillips and marion williamson about doing your own debate the three of you so at least you can see some competition of ideas in some democratic process yeah I, i've been doing that since the day that dean phillips entered the race and i've already arranged two to three debates but dean's got a giddy up so mm -hmm. I, I don't know what he's waiting for Guys, the three of us need oxygen. Let's keep it real. Mainstream media isn't like, hey, guys, come on air. and Let's do town halls, right? So uh, thank God for shows like Breaking Points. And, and that way we can get our message out. But yes, the three of us should be doing uh, debates, forums, town halls together. We should be doing it every weekend, and if we can, every day. Because people need to know uh, who Dean Phillips is, who Marianne Williamson is, who I am. And guys, you know, look, these presidential races are really funny. Because you think 2%, I was kidding around about it before, like there's nothing to write home about. Do you know what Donald Trump started at? And this is amazing. He started at 1%. Hmm. People think, oh, he started with a big lead. No, he didn't. No, the first poll, he was at 1%. The difference between Donald Trump and someone like me or Marianne Williamson is the press just kept giving him the mic. Yeah, they, they, they would allow him, him on the air 24 mm -hmm. 7 all over media. Imagine if mainstream media allowed me on air 24-7 like they did with Donald Trump. I, I would be at 20% within the week. I'd be at 40% within the month. So all we need is a little bit of oxygen to get going here. Any, anyone who, like normal older Democratic voters haven't seen a person like me. They're used to whispering, like, oh, okay, now we'll try to beat Donald Trump, but my Republicans are my friends. That's what they're used to. When they see somebody saying, no, goddammit, Pete family leaves at 84%. They're purposely not doing it. When I get into office, first thing is fire the parliamentarian, and we're not going to deal with any BS filibusters, okay? We're going to pass the bills that help your lives. We're going to get you higher wages. We're going to get lower drug prices. When they see that, they're, they're going to be... They're going to, even if it's not me, they're going to be thirsty for someone, anyone who fights for them. So Dean, Marianne, let's go, let's go. We should all be appearing together nonstop. And then shame Biden into it. Of course, he's not going to come because the minute he comes, you've got a, a progressive lion like me. I'm sorry, but I'm keeping it real. Someone who actually wants to pass the bills. Who cares about your stupid ego? Who cares who's the president? Did you pass bills or didn't you? He didn't even try with so many of the bills. He can't withstand a real debate. So we're going to yeah. put up a guy against Donald Trump that we all know can't beat Jenk Uger in a debate. That's a fact. Hey, listen, okay. you're not you're not such a slush in a debate, Jink. I wouldn't sell yourself short <laughs> on that regard. Listen, I'll go ahead and say we would love to host one of these debates if such a thing comes to fruition. And I'm um, always grateful for you taking the time to come on our show and uh, inform our audience about what it is that you're up to. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Jenkforamerica.com. 
Don't let them take hope away from you, okay? We're bringing hope back. We're going to get caught trying, and we're going to win. We're going to shock the world because Joe Biden is not the guy. I am going to knock him out of this race. Hear me now. Quote me later. All right. Great to see you, Jenk. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. The information age can be overwhelming, especially when the information can't always be trusted. But for the past 180 years, readers around the world have turned to The Economist as their trusted news source, delivering in-depth expert analysis of a wide range of topics. Listeners get a one-month free trial when they sign up at Economist.com. That gives you unlimited digital access to daily articles, special reports, great podcasts, subscriber-only newsletters, and so much more. Take the guesswork out of staying informed. Go to Economist.com to sign up. All right. Well, it's Thanksgiving week, so we wanted to do a little Thanksgiving segment, Crystal, but we wanted to do it maybe a little bit differently. Let's start with some let's start with some poll numbers. Actually, we'll put this first element up on the screen that shows six in 10 Americans are hoping to avoid politics (laughs) at Thanksgiving. This is from The Hill. A poll released Monday found that more than 60 percent of people say they would rather not talk about politics over the holiday this week. Just 29 percent of people said they're looking Looking forward to talking oh about politics with people friends are and family. <laughs> All right, I actually I have a lot of thoughts on this. We also have some great questions and thoughts from you guys that we'll read. But let's start with the poll, Crystal. Yeah, uh, I'm actually a pro. Not in every case. Okay. But I, I do think that part of the problem here is that we can't talk about politics anymore with the people that we're closest yeah, with. Yeah, So true. The, I think what really annoys people is forcing politics. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I think, is incredibly irritating. If you're the person that's, like, picking at everyone and trying to force everyone to have uncomfortable political discussions. Yeah. On the other hand, I think we should all be uh, better about making it possible to have I agree with tough that. conversation about politics and religion because if you can't find empathy for the people who are literally your family who have different perspectives than you, you're definitely not going to find empathy for the random internet poster who has a different perspective from you. Yeah, that's true. I would say the thing that irritates me is when someone comes in. I don't, I don't hate if someone brings up politics. In fact, sometimes like I like to hear from other people how they're processing an event. Like I may just ask some questions rather than really offer my opinion because I spend enough of my life offering my opinion is all available for anyone (laughs) out there who wants to know what I think about any number of issues. It's available. So I like it more to like hear from other people how they're taking in information, more normal people. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that. The thing that bothers me though is when someone comes in super hot Mm -hmm. with a super controversial take 
and presents it like there's an assumption that, yeah, like everybody obviously agrees with this. You're an idiot. You know if what you I disagree. mean? And you're yeah. an idiot yeah. if you don't disagree. And there's just like a blanket assumption that, of course, everyone must agree with this super controversial, super fringe take. I find that strange. I find it sort of like disrespectful. Um, so I will say I'm in the camp that intends to avoid politics going into Thanksgiving. Yeah. But I often fail because I just occupy so much of my mind. Yeah. I almost like can't help myself from making some kind of comment that's at least a little bit political. <laughs> yeah, it's but you. You're the problem. I am, I am the problem. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> um, but we did get some interesting responses from you guys about how you think about this. So we've got uh, Ponce Gomez says, when in doubt, instigate. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Ryan Grimm approach. See, I feel probably see, the saga. I meant approach, to ask too. Ryan when he was here because I feel like he would be the type that, in his very like low key way, oh, would yeah. offer some super hot takes so and just chill about it. see what happens in yeah. his very chill way. But anyway, yeah. he says holidays are a great time to discover the secret extremist in the family. Love starting the holiday off right with a few hot buttons and watch how the turkey legs fly. Um, we have another one. Joseph Turner Patterson the second says, in the past, I've always either avoided political convos with my family or tried to redirect them to our few areas of agreement because my dissent is typically met with anger. I have no illusions I can change their minds about anything. However, my dad recently pressed me on the subject of Israel and I decided to hold my ground. He is the typical unquestioningly pro-Israel boomer and I am very much not. And it actually remained very civil. That's hopeful. With that's an assist good. from BP on certain talking points. You're welcome. So if that specific topic comes up, I'm going to lean into it and see what happens. But anything else, I would probably continue to avoid. Those hills just aren't worth dying on. So I that's an interesting perspective of like, this issue is so important to me that I'm willing to have things be a little uncomfortable to actually assert my view. But that's that comment gets to exactly what I mean by this, is that like actually the conversations with the people you care about and you have an emotional investment in as opposed to random people on the internet or as opposed to, I don't know, some person at a bar, whatever right. it is, that's where you actually make more ground if you can. Like that's the space in our communities, in our families, where you can be persuasive because people are invested in you, they know you, they care about you. And I feel like if we can't have these conversations in this context, which largely we can't, and for sometimes, sometimes you shouldn't be forcing these conversations because it's going to end poorly. You're going to be putting politics over family. So I get that, but we should all try to be in a situation where we can have those conversations. Right. And I think that's what I, there's this next convert. Uh, you get a next, shout out in this one. Yeah, this one is, uh, I'm gonna mess up your name. Uh, Pajnahaj Real. Uh, BP does a great job with differences of opinion. I notice one person will always say, quote, you are making an important point. That's such an important point that you're making, et cetera. Even though that person has very different opinions on the matter, I might allow someone to share their opinion at the holiday table, but I don't offer mine unless they're expressing a desire to understand my perspective. That's so key. I think it would then take, I would then take the Emily approach. She states to the audience that she comes from an evangelical Christian perspective, but she's not screaming into the camera that everyone else is a baby killer. And that one reminded me of one we got from John Isaac Schumard, who named Josh Sager and says, I do not bring up politics. When you dine with boomers, it is inevitable. When you dine with boomers, it's inevitable to come up. I pull a Sager and ask, what do you think? And mm -hmm. then follow Ice-T's advice. Let them talk. Mm -hmm. Eventually they get it all in the system and the conversation moves on. Rarely they care what I actually think. And the reason these comments stood out, Crystal, is that especially over the last month, I'm sure Sagar has gotten some of this too, um, people will say, and you probably have as well, 
what you do on Crystal Kyle and Friends is different than what you do on Breaking Points. Mm. So people will say, you know, when Emily's on with Megyn Kelly or when Emily's on Federalist Radio Hour, uh, you know, just it's a it's a much more sort of crystallized conservative perspective than when she's talking to Ryan or when she's talking to Crystal. And I'm sure that also is true when you're on Crystal Kyle and Friends. And that's we have to learn how to how to have these conversations in different contexts. You don't mm. talk the same way when you're trying to be, um, you know, polite and persuasive with someone you disagree with as you do when you're talking to someone who agrees with you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It very much depends on the audience and the context, et cetera. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, one thing that I always get a little nervous about is people will start, if, if you're in a Thanksgiving holiday setting where you don't necessarily know everyone, you know, there are some friends there of relatives that you haven't met yet or whatever, which is often the case for me, they'll start asking mm. you like, oh, what do you do? <laughs> and I like, I don't know, how do you answer that question? Because I try to keep it as vague as possible. Oh, yeah. Not because usually if you get, if they drill down enough to like, oh, you talk about politics for a living. Mm -hmm. Not because I'm worried they're going to ask me questions about it, because that oftentimes makes other people uncomfortable if they know you're super political. Right. Then it puts them on edge. Right. So I try to be really generic and vague when I'm answering that question. Yes, so do I. But then sometimes they'll ask, you know. The follow-ups like, and you're like, all oh, right, I'm fine. a journalist. Or like, oh, I'm a podcast. So you're like, oh, who for? Right. Like, oh, it's like uh, you can't get away with it. Um, uh, we got one last one here uh, from Jessica Sager. She says, I'm happy to talk politics at Thanksgiving to help educate my relatives whose only news sources are unhinged Facebook posts <laughs> and weird minions memes. We all know that person. Because Sorry. they actually trust what I'm saying and have told me that is helpful. Well, that's very nice. Some of them outright ask me who to vote for because I'm considered one of the smartest people in my family. Oh, that's lovely for you, Jessica. Believe me, the bar is beneath the ground and we need a metal detector. <laughs> um... Well, that's kind of a lovely sentiment, though, that um, her relatives, even the ones who are, you know, mostly looking at the unchanged Facebook, Facebook posts, post. respect her opinion and are looking for, for guidance from someone they trust. People are desperate for good information. And again, I think that is another reason. Um, I, I don't know. I love talking to you and Ryan uh, because it just is it's so helpful. It's so helpful because when you're having those conversations, you realize what you get wrong. Mm. Uh, because the other person has the best version of the other argument, hopefully. Mm. Um, or they have versions of the other argument that you've never thought of or you've never heard. And so it's just really helpful to be able to say, uh, here, listen, we might disagree. Here's one thing maybe you haven't thought of. Or here's one thing I find interesting about your perspective and ask questions. Um, that's just, I feel like Thanksgiving's actually, if you're not forcing it, if you're not putting politics over family, I feel like family gatherings are actually not the worst place in the world, but that's my unpopular opinion. Mm -hmm. my well, I am thankful opinion. for you too, Emily, and <laughs> thankful for all of you guys um, out there in the world. Hope you have a beautiful Thanksgiving day, Thanksgiving weekend, however you celebrate it. And um, we are going to have some content that is posting some great interviews. I did one with Norm Finkelstein. Mm -hmm. Sagar did one with uh, Jocko. Those are going to post a little bit early for premium subscribers, but they'll be available for everyone at some point. I don't really remember the schedule off the top of my head, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> Love you guys, and we'll see you back here with a full normal week of shows next week.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. The information age can be overwhelming, especially when the information can't always be trusted. But for the past 180 years, readers around the world have turned to The Economist as their trusted news source, delivering in-depth expert analysis of a wide range of topics. Listeners get a one-month free trial when they sign up at Economist.com. That gives you unlimited digital access to daily articles, special reports, great podcasts, subscriber-only newsletters, and so much more. Take the guesswork out of staying informed. Go to Economist.com to sign up.